Hey, good morning. Welcome to Connection Point Church. How are y'all doing? All right. My name is Joel Halpin. I am the pastor of this church, and uh, I am very thankful that right now that you are here, that you have chosen to be with us this morning. You could have been anywhere you wanted to be. You could have been somewhere else. Some of you maybe wish you were somewhere else, but right now you're here in this moment. So we're going to do a little thought experiment um, before we get to the thought experiment, though, I do want to remind you that if you take out your phones, you can go to connectionpoint.life on your phones, and you can find all of the scriptures there. Uh, they also have the scriptures today on the screens as well. We're going to start off with a, with a thought experiment about being in the present. Do I have my... I knew something was off. Yeah, I'm not being in the present right now. Now I'm here. I want you to think for a moment, we're going to try to focus in on this moment, this place where we are right now, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a moment of silence in which I'm not going to talk. And in that moment, I'm going I'm to challenge you to think and to ground yourself only in the present, which means maybe you think about how you're feeling right now. Maybe you're frustrated because of something that happened before. I want to challenge you to, you can think about your frustration, but don't think about your kids, or your family, or the car ride, or whatever it is. Think about just right now, how are you feeling? Maybe you're hungry. I don't want you to think about where you're going to eat, if you're going to Chili's, or if you're going to El Loco Gringo, where you're going to eat. I want you to just notice, hey, right now I'm hungry. Maybe in the silence you notice some noises or other sounds that right now you don't, but you notice them there when it's just kind of silent and still. But for about 20 seconds, we're going to be totally silent in here. And I don't want you to think about, man, it is awkward. I can't wait till when's he going to talk again? Maybe he'll talk in just a second, okay? I want us to ground ourselves with no forward thinking or past thinking. Stay only in the moment. Are we ready? Let's close our eyes. And begin. All right, go ahead, look up here. All right, now be honest. I will say there's a few eyes that kind of peeked up, which gives me a, a right away, lets me know, okay, you're anticipating something else. But most of you did pretty good. How many of you controlled your thoughts, no problem? You stayed in the moment the whole time. Honestly, your mind didn't wander one bit. Now, honest, I'm not going to know whether or not, but how many would say, if you're being truthful, my mind never wandered? All right, we've got maybe a handful of you that eh, kind of wander. Okay, here's the thing. One of the focuses of my life lately has been the, the reality that I don't live in the present near enough. I live in the past, and some of us live in the past all the time. And this affects our relationship. Let me give you an example. Do you know, for 40 years of my life, I did not have a relationship with macaroni and cheese. 
Okay, now this is what I meant. Anytime someone would offer me macaroni and cheese, I would get kind of sick to my stomach at the thought of it, okay? And I never had it, but this year, I've discovered my wife makes a great macaroni and cheese. And I've been to a couple of restaurants that have great macaroni and cheese, but for 40 years of my life, I grew up and I had this friend, his name was Steve, and Steve loved mac and cheese, Kraft mac and cheese. And, and I remember these smells of him making Kraft mac and cheese and this powdered cheese. And in my mind, I'm like, cheese is not powdered. And then I would see that this could had a shelf life way beyond what I thought cheese should have. And, and for some reason, the smells, the whole idea, everything about Kraft mac and cheese made me say, I will never eat mac and cheese. And, and anytime someone would offer it, even if we would go to like a steak restaurant where I'm sure it was going to be immaculate, I would still go back to, you know what, I just can't get past my past. And so for 40 years, I never tried mac and cheese based simply on an experience from the past. But not only do I get stuck in the past sometimes, a lot of my life is spent stuck in the future. For example, last year, I got a Christmas gift uh, that was kind of a home gym that I could work out in my garage, and I loved this. In fact, this year, almost every day, I would work out in my garage, but something funny happened in like January. It was so I got it at Christmas. By January or February, my mind already started saying, you know, this is going to be even better when I can have this equipment or I can begin to do this, and I began to just think, you know what? Rather than enjoying what I have right now, I can't wait till I get this or till I can clean my garage even more and, and have this opportunity. And I noticed something about myself is that I spent a lot of time thinking about my future self. Hey, someday I'm going to be here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to overcome this. And I'm not going to be where I'm at right now. And I don't spend a lot of time with myself where I am. And even the idea of sitting for 20 seconds for me of just noticing who I am, where I am, what is God doing right now, what is going on in my life right now, is very difficult. But one of the things I want to show us for this series is that whether you're stuck in the past or whether you're stuck in the future, God's gift to you is the present. God's gift for you is the present because relationships only happen in the present. The presence is only available in the present. Any relationship you have lives in the present. My wife, if I, if I were to tell you I have a great relationship with my wife, how do I know I have a great relationship? Well, like four years ago, we went, and we don't spend any time now together. We don't talk now together. But four years ago, we had this great moment. Most of you would say, I don't know if you call that a relationship, if you're not really present now. Or some of us have, uh, if you were to say, you know what, my relationship with my wife is great because in like three years we're going to go on a, on a second honeymoon. It's going to be awesome and probably not going to talk to her a lot between now and then, but when we get there, it's going to be awesome. You would look and say, that's not really a relationship. Every relationship you have happens in the present. And God's gift for you is not that he would fix your past. It's not that he would fix your future. That's what we usually think about when we think about church. Can God get me past my past? Can he get me, you know, a better future? But God's gift to you, his present, if you will, is his presence in 
your present, right here and now, God is with us. And so for this message today, it's actually this series we're beginning on Christmas presents is about experiencing the presence of God in the present. The present. And the reason this is important, in fact, I, I actually broke one sermon into four parts so that it would be simple each week. And today I simply want to talk about getting past our pra- past. Because if we're living in the past, if you can't get past your past, you will miss God's presence in your present. And so we're going to be in the Christmas story this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Now this story may be familiar to you, it may not be familiar to you, and there may be some nuances today that you've never heard. But one of the things I want us to take notice is the actual gift that God promises us. It's not what we think it is. It's not the hope of heaven. It's not even that God is going to to forgive you and change your past. His present to us is his presence. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just and willing man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so the story, what's happening here, is that they're betrothed now in this context how betrothment or or being engaged meant then is that it was much closer to being actually married, except you didn't consummate the marriage. But everything else, if you were going to separate after you were betrothed because a dowry had already been paid, this had already been signed, the, the only way to get out of this was to divorce, even though it hadn't been consummated yet. It was pretty much, other than that, it was an it was a marriage. They were connected. They were committed to one another. Now, when we think about the Christmas story, we can think about Jesus, and there's a divine element. You can't get around it when you talk about Jesus. But even Mary has a lot of of this aura that surrounds her. In fact, um, if you grew up in a Catholic, uh, with a Catholic background, you know there's a lot of, of, how would you say, a presence or an aura just prescribed to Mary as well, that there's something supernatural about Mary as well. But one of the things I love about Matthew is that When we talk about Joseph, there's no presence or aura ascribed. He's every man. He's how you and I would react to the story. And so when we see this situation from Joseph's perspective, it makes total sense. And understand, this is an entire two or three year journey that Joseph is going on. And and, and it's squished down to two verses, okay? So you can kind of read into the story about what he would have been feeling because it's how you would be feeling. If you had been betrothed, you were basically married, but you hadn't consummated the marriage, and then you found that your betrothed, your fiancé, was pregnant. The first thing that comes to your mind is the first thing that probably came to his mind. How dare she? And there are at least two assumptions that we know Joseph made, because you can see in the decisions he's about to make. The first thing that assumption that that Joseph makes is this. God is not in this, okay? God is not in this. And that's not really a a, a leap, right? If you found out that 
the one you loved had cheated on you, your first reaction would be, this is not how God works. God is not blessing me right now in his presence. God is not in this. This is not how God works. I've read the Bible. I've read parts of it, or at least I've heard stories, and this doesn't seem to be how God works. And the next thing you would think is, God is definitely not going to use her because she has been disqualified. Because remember, his, his mindset is that she has sinned. And so because she has sinned, she is disqualified. So certainly God is not in this. Because not only is this not how God works, God wouldn't use somebody who has a sin like this. That's the perspective of Joseph. Even though we know Mary it has not sinned in this instance, we know that in his mind, she's made a mistake. And this sin is going to cost her her life if people find it. That's why he's going to be quiet about the divorce. Because if people find out about the sin she committed, then she's going to be in a lot of trouble. So, two assumptions that he has made about how God works is that God doesn't work like this because I know how he used to work. I know what it looks like when God works, and God is not in this. And then he makes the assumption God is not going to use a woman who has sinned like this. And so the two questions that I want to ask today come from these assumptions. The first question is, does God still move like he used to? Does God still move today, right now, like he used to move back then? Because... Joseph clearly thinks, you know what, this is, God isn't moving like this. This isn't a move of God. The second question we're going to look at is, can God move past my past? Am I disqualified? Is God, should I even expect God to move in my life right now based on the things that I know I have done? Okay, so those are the two questions. Once we get past those two questions, we'll be done today, okay? Two questions, real easy. The first question, does God still move like he used to move? And, and this is kind of, all of us have asked a question like this, God, why doesn't God move like he used to move in the Old Testament? And it's kind of like, uh, how many of you remember your first apartment and it wasn't like last year, it was like years ago? Anybody remember? Because there's this thing that happens the older that you get is you, you remember your first apartment a little more fondly, at least I do, um, than it actually was. If you were to ask me about my first apartment, it was pretty awesome. It was a loft apartment. It was right next to the ballpark in Arlington. And we would go sometimes in the seventh inning, they would open the gates back then, and you could just walk straight in, and you could watch three innings or two innings of baseball. You could get dollar hot dogs on certain nights, and it was just an awesome place to live. And man, I loved living there. It was just fun, except for the fact that I forget any time I think about that first apartment, I forget that we actually paid money to break the lease of that apartment because my wife didn't feel safe in that apartment. In fact, we had police dogs uh, one time called in to enter the apartment next to us. We had the door kicked down and the dogs ran in and it was horrific, but I, I block all this out. And I just think, man, what a great time we had in our first years. Our first years were awesome, whereas if we really dig down, you know what? It wasn't that awesome. We were paycheck to paycheck, if that. It was a lot of stress, a lot of strain. But you remember back, and, and we all have heard at least people say this, man, it was so much simpler back then. And it was not better back then, but we have this, the past seems to kind of be glorified sometimes. And we all tend to do it. But you know, you also do that with a way that God works in 
the Bible. I want you to think about this and consider this. Why do we sometimes think that God used to move differently then than he does now? And there are two ways, two things I want to show you, two misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding is a misunderstanding of the language of the past. Okay, now, Joseph is reading a Bible. Whenever he reads his Bible, his Bible is 400 years old. It would have been the Hebrew Old Testament, Old Testament for us. The Hebrew Bible would have been 400 years ago. And so every time he sits down to see how is God moving or is going to read, it would have been a story from 400 years ago. This is how God moves 400 years ago. But if you remember, and some of you, if you weren't here, we just preached a, a series, and we went through how the Bible came to be. And one of the things that we learned is that the Bible isn't a magical book that fell from heaven. And this is important to understand how we got the Bible, that the Bible isn't an, a magical book that came to heaven, because when you think about how people actually write books, it matters, okay? Let me give you an example. Exodus chapter 19 Basically, it says this. It says that Moses went up on a mountain. He went up on the mountain, and the mountain called to him. The Lord called from the mountain. And the Lord said, this is what you're going to say to the people in Israel. You're going to, tell, you're going to remind them what I did for them. And then you're going to tell them, hey, you are now a, a royal priesthood. You are, you are all priests now. You are now a holy nation. And, in, and then it, it iterates this phrase, this is what the Lord said to tell the people of Israel. And so you hear that and you're like, why doesn't God ever do that to me? Why doesn't God ever speak to me and just say, hey, this is what I want you to go tell her. This is what I want you to go tell him. This is what you need to say to your boss in the morning. This is what you need to say to your kids in this moment. Why didn't God ever speak to me the way he spoke to Moses? But the truth is, if you remember a few months ago, Moses, when we say Moses wrote the first five books, including this book, Exodus, he didn't actually write it. This book was transmitted, remember, for 500 more years at least, was transmitted orally. Moses was telling a story, and his story, he would have told people, I went up on this mountain, and when he passed it down to the next generation and the next generation, he would have told the story, I went up on the mountain, and this is what God told me. God told me this. And so you need to understand, it's, it's not a magical book that's so far removed that, that it doesn't happen anymore. If I were to tell you the story of, of how I became a pastor, it goes something like this. I was at my lowest point when I was about 20 years old, and I, I had this, this just deep day, this dark day where I was like, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I, seem, I feel like I'm going to fail out of school. And so I went down by the pool and got in the spa at, the, at our apartment complex. And I opened the scriptures, and God spoke to me. And God said, Joel, you are supposed to go into the ministry. And I will tell you, that was as clear as day. However, if I tell you that, which is exactly how it happened, how many of you think that I was sitting in the spa, and a booming voice came down over the University of Texas, which, if it happened, probably would be where it happened, right? But how many of you think that it's an audible voice that I heard just because I said God spoke to me? Now, I'm not saying it wasn't an audible vo voice that spoke to Moses, but I'm definitely saying it doesn't have to be. Because we seem to, when we read into the Old Testament, we forget that God is going through people. So first of all, there's a misunderstanding sometime of language. Now, God certainly does and can use an audible voice to speak to anyone. But it's just as likely that when somebody tells the story of how God spoke to, spoke to them, 
He's using the same language you would say if God was speaking to you right now. The second misunderstanding we sometimes have is the silence of the past. Sometimes we read into the silence. Now, what's interesting about, Gen- or about Matthew chapter 1 is it starts off the first 17 verses with genealogies. It says that Abraham starts with Abraham and it goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus and it says he beget this, he beget this. If you're reading the King James, he was the son of this, son of this. And it's very interesting the way that Matthew does this. He starts off before we get to this story of Jesus' birth. It's just this gap between Abraham, who's the father of the Israelites, who, who was kind of the father of their religion, of their nation. And it goes all the way to Jesus. And what's interesting is that this is not just a historical recounting. It's also a a literary device. It's divided evenly. There are 14 generations between uh, Abraham and David. There are 14 generations that he lists between David and when they are exiled to, to Babylon. Okay, And then there are 14 generations after the exile all the way to Jesus. Now, the reason you need to know this is because First of all, we know that there are some generations skipped, okay? We know there are a few more people that should be in this genealogy, but for some reason, Matthew says, you know what, I want to show you something here. And and he divides it up, and he he leaves out some of the importance. He wants to connect Jesus to Abraham and to David, and so he leaves out some people that are probably unimportant. Some of you, if you were doing your genealogies and wanted to say, hey, I'm related to so-and-so, somebody famous, you might leave out your crazy uncle because that's not the point of the story. So when Matthew does this, he's trying to show you there are these three times and that directly link to what God is doing right now. The first one from Abraham to uh, David is clearly in the Old Testament. You start at Genesis and you, or you start, uh, yeah, you start at Genesis chapter 12 and you go all the way into the first books of the, the Old Testament and you will see it'll get to David and if not, a story seems to be left out. And then you go from David into the minor prophets and you can read all these things and it, it's basically from David all the way to when they get exiled in Babylon and it, you can see all the details of what's there. But then... This last section, this last third that Matthew includes, all these people that nobody really knows about. The reason that you don't know about them is because it's what we call the intertestament time. It's 400 years, basically, of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in fact, if you grew up in a church like I did, nothing was ever mentioned about what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what do we assume? God did nothing during the Old Testament and the New Testament. God stopped moving. He stopped talking for a little while. And and then Jesus came on the scene, and it was totally something new. But I'm going to tell you, Matthew connects these. And he, he actually says, listen, here's the lineage, and you need to understand that just like God was moving in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he is also moving in this 400 years. And by the way, 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the exact same amount of years when the Israelites were slaves. And when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, there's a lot that goes through your mind in 400 years, I'm guessing. Where is God? Why isn't God moving now? What is God going to do? Is he ever going to move? There's an anticipation that builds in the silence sometimes. The, The exodus were ripe for them to look and see somebody get us out of our hope. I want to show you just a few of the things going on in the silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. First of all, there were 
when, when Babylon is in charge of Israel, they move everybody out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and they move them to Babylon. And so they, there's no one, they're exiled. There's no one really, uh, no Jewish people in Jerusalem. And the, a lot of things um, are frustrating them. But then the Persians overtake the, ba- the Babylonians. This is not going to be on the test, so don't, you don't have to get too overwhelmed by this. But the Persians come in, and they take over Babylon, and they say to all the Jewish people, yeah, you can go back home. That's fine. You just got to pay a tribute to us, but you can go back home. You can be leaders. You can install your government back. You can, you can do what you used to do. And so one of the things that God does in this intertestamental time is he kind of restores Jerusalem to where at least things can happen. But then after that, the Greeks come in and they take over the Persians. Now the interesting thing about the Greeks is that they bring with them a process called Hellenization. Alexander the Great, when he conquers... He, he brings his language, and he says, hey, you can do whatever you want to do, but we're all going to speak Greek, and we're all going to love Greek culture. So one of the things that happens is all of a sudden, people who couldn't speak to each other now can speak to each other. In fact, if you want to know, know one of the main reasons that the gospel went all over the world is because Paul spoke a language that he could speak in Jerusalem and in Rome, and anywhere he went, there was a language. And that language was given to them 300 years during this time of silence. The Greeks, they eventually get taken over by the Egyptians. The Egyptians come to power, and when the Egyptians come to power, a lot of interesting things are happening in Jerusalem. In fact, there are two factions. It's kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans. It begins to get more and more and more and more and more divided. Probably can't relate to it, but that's kind of what was happening back then, okay? And in fact, by the time these two parties get to Jesus' time, they're known as the Pharisee and the Sadducees. And this divide occurs because of some of the pressure that the Syrians and the Egyptians are putting on Jerusalem. The Syrians come after, and the division increases, and then... The people in, um, this is right before Jesus, the people are so, about 100 years or so more, are so frustrated with being ruled by other people and having to pay tributes and all of this that a group of them finally says, we've had enough. And when one of the Syrian rulers comes in and decides to make an unkosher sacrifice in the Jewish temple, they rise up and the Maccabean revolt and the Maccabees take power and they're basically Jewish. They are Jewish. And so the Jews, for a time, take over and and are ruling themselves. And they basically, there was this moment where they said, you know what, we're going to, somebody's got to take a stand. And this guy um, named Jacob, okay, Maccabee, he rises up and, and, and people, for a time, are just amazed at this guy. Wow, we can actually take this back. We can, we can, there's this anticipation that builds. And then Rome comes in. And they squash this revolt. But I also come in and they're still speaking, allowing Greek to be uh, spoken. And they're, they're paving roads. And now, by the time Jesus comes along, not only can you go anywhere you want and speak the same language, but Rome comes in and they make it peaceful everywhere. Relatively, there are guards stationed everywhere to where you can walk roads at night. And it's still going to be safe. And so now you can travel and commerce starts to go everywhere. And not only that, the roads are paved, they're nice roads. And so if you look at everything going on, these are just a few examples of how between, for these 400 years, God wasn't speaking necessarily the way you might think that, that he should speak, but he's doing something that would set 
the tone that by the time Jesus came, the world was ready and the gospel was available to be spread everywhere. And not only that, there was an anticipation. There was an anticipation that God is about to do something, that God is going to move here because there's this messianic expectation that's building during this time and it's stronger now than it ever has been. Now I want to remind you some of the the scriptures that they were reading consistently. This is 2 Samuel. This is the time of David right after that. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you um, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This was said a thousand years before Christ. But you can imagine, if you're in this time of what is God doing, and you go back to this, and he said, wait a second. He said, there's going to come a time when God's son is going to be on the throne forever. Forever. And that clearly had not happened yet. Because they weren't, they weren't being ruled right now by the son of God. So there's this anticipation, he's going to come. Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of um, government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it. With justice and righteousness from this time forth evermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. In other words, all over the scriptures, they would look into it and they would see... God's about to do something, and it's going to last forever. And it's going to be a powerful move of God. And when you step away during these silent years, you can begin to see, you know what? God is still moving now the way he he seemed to move back then. How many of us, just looking at your own year, would say, you know what? This year, God didn't really move. Or you know what, I don't see how God was moving in my last couple of years. I'm kind of in a season that I'm stuck in. God, I wish he'd move like he used to move. I just want to let you recognize that you're probably misunderstanding the language of the Bible. God probably moved in a way similar to the way he moves today back then. The miracles of today are probably just as frequent as they were back then. But also you're misunderstanding the silence and that you're assuming because he's not speaking to you the way you want to be spoken to, that he's not moving pieces or preparing you or doing something right now in your midst. And you're missing it because you're focused on how he used to move. I look at our church. Now, if you're new to this church in the last two or three months, you've missed out on a, on a big part of our story and that we moved from the city of Plano into the city of Wiley. And when we started 2019. The expectation in our church was not that we would be meeting in a school on uh, December 1st. We had hopes of being in our own building, of purchasing a building and being able to have our own place and be a little more in control of our situation. And we just had these high hopes. And as it became more and more clear that, God, what are you doing? And I would just ask these, God, this, this is a dead end. Here's a dead end. Here's a dead end. And I, I just felt like I was running into dead end and dead end. And for a moment, I thought, man, God doesn't move like he used to. How many of you have had a year like that, by the way? Just curious. I want to tell you, 
A moment came in about June or, or May in which I finally sat down and I just said, God, what are you doing now? And in, that, in the month of May, I began to just pray what God was doing right now. And an interesting thing happened. You know those priorities that really have come to, to really embody our, our church for the last re relationship over religion? This, an idea that you don't find in many churches. A lot of these, and even the vision of, uh, of what we want for someone's life, that we want your life to be defined not by how you, what the things you do for God. We want it to be defined by relationships in your life. We want you to have a healthy relationship with God, a healthy relationship with yourself, and a healthy relationship with others. And if you can do those things, that's what a disciple of Christ looks like. That is what God is doing in our life. All of these ideas and things came simply when we stopped saying, God, why aren't you moving? God, what are we going to do? And we simply said, God, let us see what's happening right now in the silence. Does God move now like he used to? Absolutely. Whatever you think is going on right now, that God maybe have abandoned you or left you, I will promise you, God is with you now. His presence is in your present. Second question that we've got to get to. Can God get past our past? Remember, Joseph was asking this question, is she disqualified? She sinned, can God do anything in this situation? And this is something that uh, I think Joseph represents all of us. He makes this assumption that God can't use a sinful person. And again, I, I want to make clear, we know that, that this was an immaculate uh, um, thing that God has done, that God is actually, uh, Jesus was born of a virgin and that she hadn't sinned. But in his mind, she had sinned. And he, in his mind, she was disqualified. And I get this all the time. And I'm telling you, all the time people will say, you know what, I couldn't come to church. I couldn't come to your church. The, the roof would fall in. You know what I mean? I got to get things right before I get there. And people say this a lot, this expectation that somehow I'm not good enough to be at church because of the things I've done. And almost all of us, to some degree, have that. I'll even have some of you that will say, you know what, I'm inviting this friend, but he's not a church person. As if there's a, a church person, there's a certain type of person we allow in here. And I will tell you, if you have somebody you're not inviting to church because they're not a church person or they wouldn't come, I will tell you, they can probably fake their perfection as good as you can fake your perfection. I would just throw that out there. Because this idea that a church person is someone who's come past their past, has fixed their problem, is a ridiculous idea, and it's not found anywhere in the Scripture. And in fact, let's just go back to some of the things that the Scriptures say. Isaiah who was a prophet speaking to Jerusalem at Jerusalem, really. He was going to pronounce a judgment on Jerusalem because Jerusalem was doing everything they shouldn't be doing. This is what he says in Isaiah chapter 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together. Let us think about this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall become like wool. It's very interesting that we look at what actually happens in the Bible, and most of us, even Christ followers, forget. It's always relationship above religion. It's always God cleaning us, not us cleaning ourselves for God. Let me give you some examples. Adam and Eve, they sin against God. What does God do? The, 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 he had given them life. The, the, the punishment should have been their death. Instead, he slaughters an animal. He covers them, right? 
And then he, he removes them from the garden, from paradise. In other words, there's consequences, but he didn't give them the consequences they deserved. He doesn't kill them. He gives them a substitute. He covers them. But they lose the presence of God. They're removed from the garden. Their sin had a consequence. It removed them from the presence. But God said, hey, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to substitute. And a sacrifice was given. The first sacrifice was made by God himself. Don't miss that point. God's been on a clear direction ever since. The Exodus, in order to, they were enslaved in, in Egypt in order to be free. God said, I just need you to do one thing. Take a lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb, cover your doorpost. And anyone who does that, because they put the blood of the lamb over, I will pass over my judgment on them. The judgment was death. And he passes over because of the blood of the Lamb. When we sing a song in church about being covered in the blood of the Lamb, it's not nearly as grotesque if you grew up and understand the meaning behind it. It's really weird if you didn't grow up in church. We admit that. But this, this idea of the blood of the Lamb harkens back to Genesis of God covers our sins. He does it because we can't cover our sin. Going on after that, they escape and, and they begin to set up a nation and I preached on this at the beginning of this year in a series called You Lost Me in Leviticus. And there's this Levitical system that's put up. And what they would do is every single day they would have um, sacrifices made on an altar in the tent, okay, which is where God's presence would be. But here's the, the main idea you need to remember. Whenever they would sacrifice, and this is what we misunderstand a lot of times, whenever they would sacrifice, they weren't sacrificing so that we would be made clean. They were sacrificing so that the, the temple would be cleaned and the blood would clean the temple. They would take the blood of the sacrifice, sprinkle it on the tent or on the temple, and the God, presence of God could come in because the blood had cleansed the temple. The presence of God could come in to the camp despite the sinfulness because the blood had cleansed it. And so over and over again, we see that God uses the blood to cleanse it so that his presence can reside. And so by the time Jesus comes, Jesus does what? He restores us. He says, I will be in you, your heart. My spirit will be in your... And the only reason that's made possible is because a sacrifice was made on our behalf. And the sacrifice didn't just make us, you know, our, wipe our sins away. It made us clean, the blood of Christ made us clean so that his presence can reside in us. That's what Jesus was doing. So listen to this. Can God get past our past? Of course he can. It's been the plan all along. And now Jesus is taking, as Jesus is coming to this world as this child, this is what happens in Matthew chapter 1, 20 and 23 as we continue the story. It says, as he continued these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. They won't do it. He will do it. All this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The present that God gave us on Christmas was his presence. God with us in the now. Yes, he'll take care of your sins in the future. Yes, he took care of them in the past. But the only reason he did that was so that he could be with you right now. And so as we end this message, I just want to ask you this one question. How many of us right now 
are missing out on the presence of God because of something you did back then or because of some expectation that God can't move or won't move like he used to move. Paul says it this way. Some of you were like that, but you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So it says, Joseph woke up from his sleep, and he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. This is what Joseph did. He realized, you know what, God can work now like he used to, and my sinfulness hasn't disqualified me from God working in my life, and so he took action. He said, I'm going to do what God is calling me to do, so here's my challenge for you today. I believe every single one of us has something that God has called you to do, but you didn't do it or you're not doing it because you have this expectation that God isn't going to move through you the way he moves through other people. Maybe God is calling you to start something. Maybe he's calling you to stop something. Maybe there's a habitual sin. There's something that you've just given up on and say, I can never overcome that. And you've forgotten that you have the power of God. You've forgotten that he has made you clean. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive. Thanksgiving brought this back up to you, and so you have until Christmas that you have to say, I've got got to forgive. There's something I believe that all of us have, that if we just had this expectation, God is going to move this time, we would take action. And I know what you're thinking, I can't do it. I don't have the strength to do it, and I want to give you, just leave you with this one story. When I was probably 17, 18, my senior year of high school, uh, I was on the basketball team, so we, I decided, hey, I'm going to be what's called a bell guard at Garland High. I was going to be a basically pep squad. I don't know what it is. Not a guy cheerleader. It's any word except for that. But it was going to be the pep squad, okay, where we could, you know, we hoist, throw, up the cheer, throw the cheerleaders, all that stuff, okay? And, and so we did this. I, I decided to do this, and my brother, twin brother, decided he's going to do this too. And, and we started looking at all the things. Grades were, were fine. We were going to be there, good there. But then we had to lift 100 pounds. You had to do a, you had to lift 100 pounds above your head and hold it there for a certain amount of time. Now, for me, I was 200 pounds. I was a kind of, uh, I was having a, an off year in my senior year, <laughs> and so I was 200 pounds. I was, I was on the basketball team. I had been lifting weights, so I was like, okay, I think I'm pretty much do this. But I was talking with my brother, and we were like, wait a second. Now, at the time, you got to understand, my, my brother's still thin, but at the time, my brother was a buck 20 or something like that, buck 23. He was small. I mean, he was skinny. And he didn't lift weights at the time. And so we started thinking about this. I mean, I don't even know about the physics of this. This is going to be a hard thing to do. If you've never lifted weights, 100 pounds is, is not where you would start lifting above your head. And so we just started talking about this, and I was nervous for him. He was nervous, and we're like, I think you can do this. And we really, I mean, we both wanted to be, to do this. It'd be cool to be down on the game, you know, on the field during the games. And so the day came when, Jer- when Jeremy had to lift 100 pounds above his head, and I was just, I was as nervous as he. I can't imagine what he was going through, because I was so nervous. And it was going to happen in a class, and Mr. Brown's class, I believe. And, and I wasn't in this class when Jeremy was going to be in there. And so I just, I remember going to my class wondering, oh my gosh, is, he, is this going to happen? I don't know if he can do it. And so he comes out afterwards, and I just can't wait to know, did he lift this? Could he? Because physically, I, I don't think we were there yet in our trials. It was one of those things. By the way, he can do it now. He's strong now. But uh, you know, the physics, you don't understand. 123 pounds, that's a lot. That's a lot of weight for someone to lift almost your whole body weight if you've never tried. And so I said, well, how did it go? And he came out and he was just beaming. And I could tell, oh, it went well. And I was like, oh, man, he did it. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, well, 
Mr. Brown called me up, and the weights, it was kind of intimidating, were standing right in front of the whole class, and it was during class, so he called him in, and the entire class was going to watch my brother do something he hadn't been able to do yet. It's pretty nerve-wracking. And he said, I stood there, and I was about time to go, and, and then he said, right before I went to lift, he said, hey, we need someone to spot you, Jeremy. And so he, he called up Stedman Foreman to help spot Jeremy, okay? Now, Stedman Foreman, Wendy went to Garland High. She knows who Stedman Foreman was. He was the running back. In fact, he played the next year at the university, at the, I don't know what I just said there, the University of Houston. He was a big dude, okay? And he comes up and he stands behind Jeremy, and as Jeremy, he's spotting Jeremy. And Jeremy said, I'm going to be honest, Joel, I don't even know if I lifted anything. He said, the weights just went up, they stayed up, and then they went down. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's exactly how God wants to work in your life. The power of God is stronger than the power of Stedman. It's just the truth. But some of us will never have the courage to even try because we think God won't move like that. I'm telling you, the presence of God is with you when you are in Christ. Your past hasn't disqualified it. He's still moving. So my challenge for us this Christmas season, don't miss the presence of God because of our past or because of our future. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that no matter how inadequate we are, no matter how many of us right now are saying you don't understand what I've done. Or that you don't understand the sin I'm caught in. If you knew that, you wouldn't even expect me to expect God to move in my life. Lord, we're not here to worship ourselves. We're not here to worship somebody who's accomplished something. We're here to worship the holy God who, through his blood, through his son, did what we can't do. Lord, we walk out of here with a presence that we can't even describe. We can only feel it and live it out. And Lord, I pray that no matter who we are today, we walk out of here understanding we are a child of God in the presence of God and that you are active in our life. Lord, let us never think that you won't move or can't move because of us, because you are bigger than our worst failure. So this Christmas season, we're going to Enjoy your present to us, your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.